This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Matthew Hedges is a British expert on the Middle East. In 2018, while doing research for his doctorate, he was arrested in the United Arab Emirates, accused of spying for the British government and given a life sentence. Happily, he was pardoned later that same year on the UAE's National Day and is now able to live in freedom in Britain. Matthew has written a book about the UAE, about the much bigger issue of how that country has reinvented itself under its crown prince, Mohammed bin Zayed. Matthew, welcome to The Bunker. Hello, thank you very much, Arthur, for having me. So, Matthew, inevitably, we're going to talk a bit about your own personal experiences. Perhaps you could just quickly give the account of that story, your experiences, and, and what it told you, both about the UAE, but also about Britain's relationship with that country. Sure. I suppose in summary, I had recently undertaken two weeks of field research in the UAE, when trying to leave the country, I was stopped by state security personnel and told I had to go with them. Uh, you don't really have an option. You, you just have to mediate it as, as well as you can do. I was then interrogated for a week by two, two to three nicer, more engaging gentlemen. However, this evolved to accusations of me working for the British Foreign Office and subsequently uh, MI6. I was asked to steal documents from the Foreign Office and, and obviously I had denied all these accusations. I, I was simply there undertaking research for my PhD and I was then introduced, uh, to put that politely, to two new uh, interrogators for a period of about just under two months, I was with these two every day, sometimes being interrogated for up to 15 hours. They forced me to take medication. They denied me sleep. They kept me in, in, in quite poor conditions. And they tried to be careful about not physically abusing me. But when it came to psychological pressure and, and torture, this is uh, something which was uh, permissible by them because it, it's not something that you can tangibly show and illustrate. I was then held for a total of about just under eight months where I was held in, you know, prolonged solitary confinement the, the entirety uh, by myself in a, in a room with the lights, the, the strong blinding lights on. I was later put on bail for just under about, for about two weeks. I was taken to court and then I was later sentenced to life imprisonment. And then about four days later, I was granted a presidential pardon. It was quite strange uh, for, for many different reasons, um, not only because the UA was accusing the UK of, of, of these acts, 
but also the Foreign Office's reluctance to, to, to engage with this whole process. Now that you're out, and um, hopefully you're able to put some of that very traumatic experience behind you, uh, what is your conclusion about what the British government did or didn't do and the reasons they might not have done it? In some ways, they tried to, it, it seems from my perspective, hope and see that it would take a, a natural course of action that would uh, result in a, a somewhat positive outcome. I don't think they understood the accusations that were being put against me, as well as the fact that even though that it's well recorded that there is widespread abuse and, and torture ongoing within the UAE's judicial system, they seem to forget that, ignore that fact in my case. I was asked when I was able to speak to uh, the British Embassy uh, later when I was on bail why I had admitted to it in court. This was by the, uh, the deputy head of station in the UAE who had previously worked at Amnesty. She asked me why I admitted to it in court and that that lack of empathy and understanding shows quite a, a strange rose-tinted view of these affairs. There was also a, a very distinct difference between the Foreign Office in London and persons within the embassy in the UAE. We could talk about this story uh, for a whole podcast series, but I do want to get on to your book, Matthew. It's a fascinating book, Reinventing the Sheikhdom, Clan, Power and Patronage in Mohammed bin Zayed's UAE, published by Hurt. Something that I also picked up from reading your book is that really, in fairly recent history, the UAE was a very turbulent place with endless assassinations, uh, seizures of power, infighting, and so on. So perhaps for the listener who, when, when we talk about the UAE, they just think of the, the skyscrapers in Dubai, can you give us a quick description of what is this country and how has it evolved in the last 40 years? Sure. <laughs> So, so in a very, very, very quick and broad overview, the UAE first and foremost is a federation of seven different emirates. These are more than simply counties. These are microcosms of, of like quite delicate social, political uh, dynamics and relationships. They are extensions of families. They're tribal networks who have quite close association between them. Over time, the power has shifted between these different emirates for reasons of commerce, for reasons of natural resources, and many other issues. However, over time, power has increasingly centralized and solidified within the southern emirate of Abu Dhabi. Uh, Dubai is, is quite a small emirate. It doesn't have much or if any natural resources. And it's really because of that that the emirate of Abu Dhabi has been able to consolidate power. Under the ruler, the the uh, founder of the UAE, Sheikh Zayed, he lived in a world which was, as you said, rife with with internal conflict, both within his own immediate family, but also across the entire federation. He succeeded uh, in, in, in forming the UAE and, and getting these tribes and, and groups to work together. However, over time, their independence and autonomy has decreased. This process then accelerated upon his death in 2004 when his eldest son, Sheikh Khalifa uh, bin Zayed, took over. The crown prince at that time was then Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ. And he has overseen a, a process of, uh, it, it's somewhat of a parallel state 
whereby he's used his networks and connections within the military, within the security services, and within certain economic and industrial areas and groups to create and establish formal and informal networks that have fundamentally given rise to a new generation of of political and social leaders. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. MBZ is at the heart of your book and at the heart of this story. But unlike the um, sort of similarly named MBS of Saudi Arabia, he hasn't really become such a prominent figure on the global stage. So I think it would be worth focusing on him a little. What sort of a person is he? It probably wouldn't be a surprise to, to, to many listeners to, to understand that his background, he was the third son of the UAE's founder, Sheikh Zayed. He was in the direct limelight of political succession. He hadn't had as many political roles and instead took a, a path through the military and has really used and exploited that, that power network to transition into the political sphere because many of those persons that were trusted to go into the higher echelons of the security services are also those that hold significant political clout. In essence, he has kind of reshaped those traditional networks to centre around him. He's known to be a degree of uh, inflexibility. He's quite uh, forthright in his views uh, and his positions. He always knows what's going on. He has that direct relationship with uh, the executioner in a certain department. He's always involved in that process. Um, And this really tells and shows you his attention to detail and focus in, in, in governance. So in that case, uh, do you think he was personally aware of and focused on your own case? After all, accusing someone of spying for a close ally seems like an important issue. It's nearly impossible that he wouldn't have known. You, you mentioned his overseas activities, and certainly that's where NBZ and the Emirates itself appears to have really transformed its profile. I'm thinking about involvement in the war on Yemen. I'm thinking about involvement in uh, the ownership and the establishment of ports in, in, in parts of Africa, land holdings in Africa, forward-leaning military engagements in, in quite a lot of environments. But also, underlying that, there seem to be some very determined kind of ideological pillars. MBZ is kind of obsessed with Islamists and he's obsessed with the threat from Iran. Could you say a bit about that and, and whether or not it's, it's fair to, to characterize those things as obsessions? Rightly so that you've noted their, the transformation of, of their international profile. They have certainly been at the forefront of, of many events following the Arab Spring. And if you follow this back, you, you'll see that it, it's all been a Part of a quite a stringent and quite a, a tough learning process for them 
since 9-11 when they actually tried to purchase many uh, of the management rights to ports in the US. They have heavily utilized and exploited many shared concerns with, in particular, the US. Uh, again, this comes down to, you know, anti-Iranian efforts, uh, anti-political Islamist elements. And they have used this to legitimize many of their overseas operations and interactions. One of the things that makes the UAE unusual uh, compared to the sort of comparable countries in the region is that it has become a major tourist destination. Uh, and it's, al- it's almost as if there's a parallel society, particularly in Dubai, how do you think the sort of the ruling class of the Emirates, and, and particularly the NBZ, how do they feel about, on the one hand, ruling a conservative, Islamic-based Gulf monarchy, and on the other hand, having a, a one of the sort of global hotspots for, for sort of licentious tourism yeah. on, on, on their shores? Sure. It's a really interesting question because they are legitimizing and using a certain view of, of Islam that should be apolitical. There's a way of maintaining a separation between politics and religion. They are absolutely socially conservative, but they also defer to the government as and when. There's an understanding, a social understanding, that not only has the country developed extremely quickly in such a short amount of time, but that they need that diversification to continue. They need that to survive for the future. And so when they speak about state-building, nation-building development. Many of these projects, building these great skyscrapers, these massive roads, attracting the world to their shores, creating satellites domestically, are a signal of the state's development. The citizens may look down upon other states within the region, such as Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or Oman, as being socially backward, that they aren't as developed. And so that there's a way of using the results of modernity that have that have enabled the country to develop and, and grow, albeit one that is certainly at odds at their historical identity, but they're using that to legitimize the behaviors of the state. You've seen recently in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, these videos of outdoor clubs of, of people engaging. I think the way in which if you're a state such as the UAE now, you are appealing to the international arena and your own reputation as much as you are domestically. Now, one of the things that has been a feature of the sort of post-2011 settlement, and and you've already referred to it, but it's worth sort of going into a bit more, is the degree to which it has become a surveillance state. My understanding is that during the COVID pandemic, this has been even more the case, partly, of course, for sensible public health reasons. But as I've been told by people who've traveled there during that period that the, the version of the sort of COVID app that many countries have is incredibly intrusive in, in, in the Emirates, uh, perhaps not surprisingly. So it's, it's interesting that it's become a sort of extreme surveillance state, but it's also become almost a bit of a petri dish where new technologies are tried out by innovators, uh, often with, with connections to Israel. So I suppose it'd be interesting to talk a bit about that and then perhaps address that question of the peace treaty with Israel, which, which again, is a sign of this evolution of, of where the Emirates is going. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, when, when we speak about that state control, it is legitimised for the greater good. 
it's continuously lauded as having one of the world's best crime records and safety records. And this, of course, is, is a good thing, but kind of at what cost? The citizens themselves can, can often have their uh, nationality stripped. If you are a foreign person, you know, you may commit a small uh, law or a big law, but ultimately they can decide quite arbitrarily to simply deport you. And so when you when we look at the, the wider surveillance state, the legislation only supports and protects total oversight, but the actual uh, framework of you connecting, uh, using a mobile phone, connecting to the internet, is all linked to your own personal identity. It's linked to your, your SIM card, is linked to your ID. And of course, they have the money and ability to, to continuously watch every form of digital communication that, that, that takes place. It's a certain ethical question, but if these laws aren't enacted openly, this is when issues become abuse can, can take place. When we look at you know the responses to, to COVID and, and everything else, again, this is legitimized for that greater good, for health reasons and, and, and so on. It doesn't mean that these are innately good tools, but they're just good tools at social control. And as I mentioned, uh, quite a lot of these are based on technology that's come from Israel, and that seems to be part of a, a, a wider move, which involves both the normalization of relations, a peace treaty, but also, perhaps more importantly, particularly in the person of Sheikh Tahnoun, who's the, the head of the intelligence services and, and a brother of MBZ, the increasing involvement in Israel in the security of the state at Whereas, of course, not so long ago, Israel would have been seen as a sworn enemy of the state. So, again, this this does come back to that to the point I made earlier about a, a degree of modernity and opening up. Socially, it, it's very difficult to gauge what the population thinks about the relationship, the UAE's relationship with Israel. But for the UAE as a state, it wants to be seen as as forward looking, as engaging. And not being, by contrast, it's, it's like a self-orientalist type of view. It doesn't want to see itself as backward. It doesn't want to see itself as some Bedouin tribe who's simply stuck in the past. It's about moving forward and trying to be somewhat pragmatic. From a technological and financial perspective, Israel is is absolutely at the at the forefront of of surveillance and and security products and services, and it, it really does emphasize some of the hypotheses of my book and my research that, you know, some of the first things that the UAE did openly was engage with Israel in many of these services. This really is because they are sensitive to developments within their own country and uh, from, you know, domestic security threats. I just wanted to finish by asking you uh, how you think your book will be received in government, sure. both in the UK and the UAE. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, from the outset, it appears that the Foreign Office weren't trying very hard to help you, and that may well be because they didn't want to um, introduce any grit into the relationship uh, with the UAE. And similarly, uh, whilst your book might not be widely available in, in, in the UAE, I'm sure it will be... Uh, read with interest in certain quarters. So what, what's your expectation of that? Sure. So one of the first things I talk about is the is the change in laws in regards to secretive information at which it's, it's made clear 
that it could be open information. It doesn't matter on the actual nature of it being secretive or not. If, if it's if it's arbitrarily deemed to be secretive, then then that's the case within the UAE. From the UK's perspective, th- this really simply is academic research. I'm not coming forward with anything new. It's just coming forward publicly with information that may be against the grain or against you know those open discussions. It should really help and, and underscore a different perception to which the UAE has tried to monopolize, that it is a strong and stable state. It's to help contribute to a discussion and debate about what that country really is and stands for and where it's going in the future. From the UAE's perspective, of course, I, I, I know they, um, I think it's quite clear that they uh, didn't like my PhD and what was in it. But the fact that in, in, during the court case, they actually did have the charges reduced from handling secret information to handling sensitive information. And that distinction is huge. It does more so actually highlight the thesis itself that it is an insecure state that is is highly sensitive to domestic affairs. I assume the book will be banned. (laughs) But it is an interesting read from an external perspective. I'm ready to engage with persons who disagree, but it's based on fact. There aren't many other books or articles written about the UAE. Hopefully my book does present a a certain perspective for for people to to look into themselves. Well, as someone who's had the privilege of reading it, it definitely does. And let us hope that it becomes an underground classic uh, in the UAE, passed secretly from house to house. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us in the bunker to talk about your own extraordinary personal story, but also your very important book and and your, your really important academic work. Thank you very much for having me, Arthur. Have a nice day. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with free friends using the Bunker Up hashtag? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>